Thanks, Tara. Um, a little bit of a unique week. Um, I'm Claude, as she mentioned, and uh, we. what's unique about it is the setup is different. If you've never been here before, then you have no idea about that, uh, but we don't have drums or electric guitar. It's just kind of low-key uh, this morning, and uh, we're actually excited to do sort of an unplugged service. The third item that's on your seat this morning, she mentioned the two of them, but the third is just a further explanation of one day to feed the world and a, kind of a booklet for you to take and look through if you have any questions. Um, we're going to continue in this morning's uh, series. Uh, we are in the midst of a series called Consider the Source. Consider the Source. And this morning's uh, title is Grace. And so we're going to be uh, talking about grace, which sounds a little bit counterintuitive uh, if you've looked ahead on the section of scripture that we're going through, because this series is actually through the first six chapters of First Corinthians. And so it's a little counterintuitive because we're talking about how sexual immorality defiles the church. If you've read uh, the next section of scripture, that's chapter five, verses one through 13. So I'm going to read that uh, and you can follow along if you have your Bibles. If not, it'll be projected. It is a chapter, and so you get to start uh, a day reading a chapter of the Bible. Doesn't that sound fun? So here we go. It begins in verse 1. It says, uh, as uh, the Apostle Paul has written uh, Corinthians to the church in Corinth, it says this. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Outstanding. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I am already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord." Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since they would uh, need to go out of the world. Sorry, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, a reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is not those inside the church whom you are to judge. Sorry, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? See, we got an extra hour sleep, but it seems to not be helping me at all. He continues with the last verse. He says, God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning, and uh, we're thankful to be in this place together to hear from you. We pray that your presence would rest in this place. We pray that we'd have an encounter with the living God. We'd leave this place forever changed and marked by that encounter for your glory. And uh, we pray you'd remain with us. In your name we pray. Everyone said, amen. Amen. As I mentioned, we're going through the first six chapters of uh, 1 Corinthians, and uh, then we'll begin an Advent series, which we're really excited about. And you'll hear more about that as we move further ahead. But 
I was, uh, as I was considering this passage of scripture this morning, I was thrown back. I had the opportunity to uh, go back to my undergrad alma mater and, uh, and speak there. And while there, I was flooded with a whole mess of memories. First of all, I'm getting old. It's crazy when you're like, yeah. So it was like in the alumni area and they're like, wow. So it's been 20 years. And I'm like, that's it. Wow. That is amazing. So I throw punched her. Um, no, just kidding. No, it's fine. But it, you're just flooded with all these memories. And when I was in college, I actually worked at a, uh, a high-end restaurant. It was a high-end Italian restaurant. And I was uh, an SA, which stands for server assistant, and then uh, did some serving and stuff like that. But as a server assistant, uh, we had a role to uh, clear the tables, to uh, assist the server in any way possible. And it was kind of a, a complicated yet simplistic job. Uh, the thing that was unique about it is that we would uh, have the opportunity to serve and engage the customers. We would also have the opportunity to uh, clear their plates and do things behind the scenes. And so one of my friends uh, got me the job, actually. He was connected there. And, and one of the times I went, we had like these secret passages because it was a really high-end restaurant. So it would look like a corner, but you'd go up to the corner and then you could turn. And so that way, you know, they wouldn't see us walk across, you know, the little peons. So we could kind of secretly go behind back passages. So I went behind this one back passage one time and there's my friend uh, who I went to college with and he's sitting there and he's eating food. And so I'm like, dude, somebody's going to catch you. You shouldn't eat back here, you know, because even though it's a, a hallway and he's like, oh, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. I'm like, all right. So he's just eating whatever. So I go by. I come back the other entrance and he's back there in a different corner and he's eating something. And I'm like, how many meals are you going to eat? Like you, you, you don't get a lot of breaks. And he's like, I'm not taking a break. And I'm like, all right. And so I walk back out onto the floor, and then it happens. I, um, I go back down this one side following my friend who has just cleared a table, and I see him set the tray down and grab food off the tray and start eating it. And I realize he's not taking a break. He's eating other people's leftovers. <laughs> so I look at him. I'm like, hey, you hungry? Like, you doing all right? You got a meal plan at the college, don't you? And he's like, yeah, no, I'm good. He's like, well, look at this. Look, it's half the meal. I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, what do you mean? I'm like, that is disgusting. What in the world are you doing? And, like, and the server walks by. He's like, he does it all the time. As he walks by, I was like, you do that all the time? You kiss your mother with that mouth? Like, what are you doing? He's like, what? He's looking at me like, I'm disgusting. I'm like, what? And he's like, just keeps eating. And he's like, no big deal. And so the night goes on and it just becomes kind of this thing that has already been accepted by all of the people that already work there. Like, he's just, he's just going to eat other people's food. If it looks good to him, he'll just polish it off. And so there's this one guy who is rather elderly. He appears to me as if maybe he's dying of a disease possibly a communicable one. And uh, he's just eating away and he sort of pushes away his dish and uh, this dude goes over, picks up his plate and I'm like, this needs to stop. Like, do not eat any of his food. And he's like, what is your problem? I'm like, you're not going to eat his food. He's like, he barely touched it. I was like, oh no, he touched it and he might be dying of something. And he's like, no, I've got like, I never get sick and it's because I just eat everybody's food and he just started eating. I know some of you are super grossed out, I can tell. But there's a bit of the information that I feel like you still need to understand. 
He used their silverware. Yeah, right? Like, because he doesn't walk around with a fork, people think about it. He's just grabbing their food with their silverware and just eating it. Unbelievable. Absolutely repulsive. And so I have a question I want to ask you this morning. Why are we so appalled by what others do? Why are we so appalled by what others do? We say things like this. I would never, I would never do that. I would never do that. There's some of you this morning, like, I would, like seriously, I would never do that. All right? I want to submit to you that the reason why we're appalled by what others do is because it makes us feel better about ourselves. We're appalled by what others do because it makes us feel better about ourselves. When we can look and be like, oh my gosh, do you believe they did that? They're such a mess. But I am so good. Let me tell you this disgusting thing that that person did. I would never do that. I want to tell you, no matter who you are today, Christian or not, Christ follower or someone that that came this morning just to kind of check things out, regardless of who you are, the truth is this, as a human being, you want to feel good about yourself. Or better said, you want to feel better about yourself. And more times than not, we feel better about ourselves by looking at the depravity of others. None of us enjoys being called out when we're wrong. I mean, it doesn't make you right. So before you're like, right, honey, I don't like being called out. It's wrong that you do that. It doesn't mean that you're right in what you do. It just means that our flaws are not fun to chat about. Like, hey, guess what I'm really bad at? We often put our best foot forward. I mean, that's really why social media was created, right? It was like this insecure person that was like, I think I'm just going to tell the best parts. (laughs) And now we can take pictures of it and videos and everything. And everybody be like, their life is so good. They never argue. I'm going to start like a social media campaign, like hashtag truth and just show like the jacked up version of my life, like kids screaming and like hair all messed up and be like, this is my morning hashtag life, you know? It's strange because as much as we don't want to chat about our flaws, the bizarre thing is that we actually believe that those that lie to us love us. Let me explain. American Idol perfect example. Now I know they're like in their 2000th season or whatever. It seems like the show's been on forever now. But I remember in the early years when they first started showing it, it was just, it was amazing. It was this mind-boggling, unbelievable situation where someone that clearly has no capacity to sing whatsoever just gets up in front of a room full of strangers and just belts out the most embarrassing attempt at singing that we've ever seen in our lives. We call it entertainment and they know we're watching to be entertained. And they're like, oh, but I'm good. Like, I'm killing it right now. And they're just singing their heart out. And you're like, no, that is terrible. You are terrible. And I remember the little little breakout sessions where they would get in front of the camera after they've been eliminated. And they're like crying and wiping tears away. And they're like, I don't care. I don't care because they don't know what they're talking about. Because my friends say I'm a great singer. And they love me. Do they, though? right? Do they? Like, did you talk to them before you were like, I'm going to be on American Idol? And they're like, oh no, like she thinks we really think she's good, right? We want to believe the lies about ourselves. When people say we're good at something, we're like, I knew it. 
And so we think those people are friends, but the reality is we need truth tellers in our lives. We need truth tellers in our lives. We need people willing to tell us the truth in love. Because when I see a teenage girl with tears running down her face, wiping away, being like, I'm good at singing, and she just embarrassed herself in front of America, I'm thinking, it's quite possible no one loves that girl. Right? Why wouldn't someone that loves her be like, hey, honey, how about we just keep it, the singing to the shower? Let's just keep it inside the house. This man in the Corinthian church is engaged in a physical relationship with his stepmother. We know it's not his birth mother because Paul would have ripped into him in a completely different way. But he's engaged in a physical relationship with his stepmother. It was an unthinkable thing to even an unchurched person in Corinth. In fact, we can go back and read the philosophers. We can read the people that lived in the day uh, uh, that this was written in Corinth. And they say some very aggressive things that I couldn't even read in this setting about how despicable of an act that is. And it's happening in the Corinthian church. And the Corinthian church is okay with it. They're not addressing it. They're not addressing it. They're not calling this man out. No one is willing to be a truth teller in his life. Why? Why are they silent? The, uh, uh, I just blanked out on what it's called. The, uh, holy smokes. What is it that, wow, what is it that we read? The books. Commenta- the commentators. Holy cow. That's great. That'll play well on a, uh, on a podcast. The commentators uh, argue. The commentators argue about what's actually happening here in, in Corinth as far as why they're not addressing it. One uh, area that, that a lot of commentators agree with is that uh, this was a situation where an inheritance was at in balance. And so the son is engaging in a physical relationship with his stepmother uh, because his father has passed away and he's wanting the inheritance to remain in the family. And as a result, the church is going to fiscally benefit from the decisions that he's making immorally. And so therefore they remain silent, which is unthinkable, obviously. But there's a second vein of thought, and that's that um, the people in Corinth were unwilling to engage this man because by avoiding him, they were able to avoid their own depravity. Hey, at least we're not as bad as that guy. You believe that? Yeah, we're pretty good. Let's not address it. We have freedom in God anyway, don't we? I mean, we have freedom in this thing called the gospel is what the church in Corinth is saying. And uh, the reality is this person, this man within the church, he's a proclaimed Christ follower based on the way Paul addresses the issue. And so in verse two, it says, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. There's a lot of evidence to indicate that this man is saying, listen, I'm living in sin. I know it's wrong, but I love God and he loves me. So I can do what seems right. In fact, I'll even find somebody to agree with me. Doesn't that sound familiar? Sometimes we lie to ourselves about the reality of our life, about the brokenness of our life, about the poor decisions that we've made. 
about the lifestyle that we live, about the way that we spend money, the decisions that we make, the friends that we keep. And along the while, somewhere, when we start to realize that maybe there's something broken about it, that there's a conviction that maybe is connected to it, we tell ourselves lies to try to justify the decisions that we're making. We sound a lot like the world that says, hey, listen, if it feels good, just do it. And then we find friends, in quotations, to justify what we know is wrong. The reality is, you'll find somebody. There's one of you sickos out there that think it's cool to use somebody else's fork to eat that food on the plate. You're like, what's the big deal, dude? It's tasty food. Like, why throw it out? All right? Don't raise your hand. I don't want to know you. (laughs) But the fact is, if you look long and hard enough, you'll find somebody that's like, I think what you're doing is right. You're like, seriously? Yeah, you should just kill him. You know? Obviously an extreme example. But the fact is, if you want to, you'll find somebody to support the lie you're telling yourself. And so on one extreme, what we have within the church in Corinth and what we have in a lot of churches today in Christendom is on one extreme, we have this this legalism, this approach to say, listen, you have to follow every letter of the law and God is crushing you and you must be behaved and you must fall into this box and and the extreme is legalism. And on the other extreme, we have an SAT word called antinomianism. And antinomianism says, listen, the grace of God will cover everything. Just live how you want. If you ask Jesus to be the leader of your life, then just go and do whatever you want because after all, God loves you. God loves you. And I think our culture is taking this word love and they're saying, listen, you know what? Let's worship love instead of worshiping God. Because here's the deal. God is love, but love is not God. And so in the middle between this tension of I I try to behave so much that religiosity is crushing me and I can do whatever it is that I want because God loves me, right in the middle is the truth of the gospel. And the truth of the gospel says, listen, Jesus lived the perfect life that you cannot. He fulfilled the law. And in doing so, you no longer have to live at the whim and beck and call of your flesh. So right in the middle, God is saying, but there's freedom. There's freedom. And that's what Paul is saying to the church in Corinth. You have swung the pendulum too far. What do I mean by flesh? The desires of our flesh. Verse five, he says this, you're to deliver this man to Satan. (laughs) I love that he just doesn't pull any punches. Like I have an idea, deliver this man to Satan. But this is what he says. He doesn't literally mean that he wants this man to, be, to go to hell. He says, deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. He's talking about this man's salvation in a unique way. What he's saying, flesh in the Greek means literally the seat of sin and rebellion from God. That's what he's saying. He's saying, deliver this man to Satan. And, and what he means by that is allow him to engage his lifestyle by throwing him out. And when he comes face to face with the impact of the consequences of his sin, because to be thrown out of a community of believers in that day and age was very significant. And so he's saying, feel the, let him feel the pain and the penalty of the decision that he's making. Because in that pain, in that truth, when he hears it, It will begin to destroy the seat of rebellion that he's established in his life. The seat of sin, the flesh. Paul's saying, speak truth to him. 
allow him to come face to face with his depravity so that he might be saved. We, we live in a world that just, we don't want to do that. We don't want to do it. We, we either don't want to talk about sin because it makes us feel better about ourselves because we know we're imperfect and so why would we point the finger at others? But it's interesting here, there's a fine line happening about the distinction of who it is that we need to address and how it is we need to address them. Because Paul is saying grace requires the acknowledgement of sin. God wants to extend grace, but it requires repentance. It requires repentance. So verse 6 and 7 goes on, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Now, this is kind of a, a loaded phrase and it, it really doesn't have as much of a significant impact in our culture if you don't understand that what he's talking about leaven, he's really talking about yeast and how you can't limit how yeast impacts dough. And of course, I know we have a room full of bakers this morning. <laughs> I have baked bread and like the, the way that you treat the yeast is like it's a, it's a bomb that you need to make sure like, oh, careful, don't, get the, don't let the yeast get wet and don't touch it with anything. Get wet. You know, it's like, oh my gosh, okay, 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 the yeast. <laughs> because it can have impact significant impact. I have a somewhat crude illustration, but I think that it just drives the point home so well my wife's getting nervous. <laughs> but I think it puts things in some contemporary terms here. Um, what if I made some cookies this morning and said, here, have some cookies. They're delicious. They're chocolate chip cookies. They're your favorite. Let's just pretend they're your favorite. You're like, I don't like chocolate chip cookies. I'm totally paleo right now. I don't know. But in, in either case, <laughs> keto, I don't know, something. Uh, I can't keep up with all of it. So in either case, oh, paleo. What did I say, paleo? <laughs> Outstanding. If those are the only two hiccups that I have this morning, then we'd be great, but it's not going to be, so get ready. Um, <clears throat> if I had cookies here and said, hey, listen, this is your favorite cookie. Enjoy. You should just know this. There's, there's just a tiny bit of dog poo in there. I mean, but don't worry. It's like just, I mean, it's just a little bit. Like, like a really little bit. I mean, you can't, even, like, you can't even smell it or anything. Like, go ahead, have it. You're like, no, I'm good. I mean, don't get me wrong. That dude that I work with, he probably would just eat it. I don't know. But like I said, it's somewhat of a crude example, and yet it drives the point home. There's nobody here that, that's going to eat that. You're going to look at it and be like, I don't care if it's a little, like it messes up the cookie. I, I'm not going to try that cookie. Why? It's just a little bit. It's like a tiny little bit. Because a little bit is a big deal. It impacts the whole thing. It's a game changer. It's a deal breaker. That's what Paul's saying. Listen, a little bit of, of leaven, a little bit of yeast, it, it affects all the dough. You can't pull it out. You can't remove it. What Paul is referencing here is something that uh, took place at Passover. And so he's making reference to Passover, and Passover in and of itself is a celebration of the Israelites leaving Egypt. In fact, if you go back, what they're, what they're celebrating is that uh, 
God set them free from Egypt because they had to kill a perfect lamb. And as they killed a perfect lamb without spot or blemish, they took the blood of that lamb and they put it over the doorposts of their home. And as a result, when the angel of death came, it passed over the Israelites' homes. And the people of Egypt, the firstborn of their children, were killed. It's a foreshadowing of the coming Christ. That the perfect, sinless lamb, Jesus Christ, would years later go to a cross and die a death as the firstborn son of God for our sins. He would lay down his life for our sins. And so they're about to celebrate the Passover feast. And he's making reference to something that was typical prior to the Passover feast. What they would do is they would clear all the furniture and they would get a broom and they would sweep out their home to get all the old leaven out. They'd sweep it out. It would symbolize prior to the Passover meal, a new beginning, a new beginning. And that's what Paul is saying. Listen, you can't start new when you've got the old life right in your midst. You can't start new because just a little bit affects everything. You can't walk in the newness until you removed what used to be. And for some of us this morning, we're sitting here and, and literally we're holding on maybe to something physical that represents something of the flesh. We'd call that a, an article of affection. Something that, that you just say, listen, my, my life is new. I mean, but I still, I still do this. I, I still have that. I still hold on to this. Listen, it represents something far deeper. I'm not here this morning to tell you, take that article of affection and throw it away. Because you, you throw that thing away and it won't change anything because you haven't addressed the issue. You talk to anybody that's trying to, to, to quit any type of habit. You just take the average person trying to, trying to quit smoking and say, you know what, the way you quit smoking, just throw out your pack of cigarettes. That worked never right? It doesn't work. Why? Because for a moment you're like, there, I won't be tempted anymore. I mean, I don't want to spend the money to buy it, except, you know, I think I'm going to start next week. And then they start over again. And, and the same is true. We can say like, oh, what a disgusting habit for those of us that aren't smokers. Like, oh, that is disgusting. Why? Because you want to feel better about the habit that you have. You want to feel a little bit better about the depravity of your own life. So you can point your fingers at other people's struggles. And so listen, I want to I challenge you to look at the root of the issue. Because if you don't address the root, whatever that old thing is, it will win your affections again. You have to be willing to ask why. I have some certifications in coaching, and uh, one of the things that we're told is to never ask the question why in a coaching environment, because it's inherently offensive. Yeah, you, know, you can say, really, how did you do that? And uh, what did you do? And when are you going to do that? But if you're like, why did you do that? You're like, what do you mean why? I don't have to like tell you why. Leave me alone. It's, it's an inherently offensive thing. If you don't believe that in the midst of any type of conversation with your spouse, loved one, friend, or anything, be like, why would you do that? See how that works out for you. <laughs> so why is an inherently offensive question? And we don't like to ask it about ourselves, but it's the way we address the root of the issue in our life. If we're willing to say, wait, why do I do this? What is my motivation? One layer comes off. But, but why do I do that? And another layer is pulled off. Why would I feel that way? Why do I think that way about God? Why do I look 
for the approval of others more than I desire the approval of God. That's why I'm making this decision, because I just, I want other people's approval. Why? If you pull the layers back enough, why is it that what God says about you isn't enough to the point that you want to perform even for God? I'm good enough, God, right? I'm good enough, right? And so you have to be willing to just pull the layers back. If you want to put handles on this this morning, it's really about being brave enough in the quietness of your own mind and in the space of your own life to start saying, wait, why do I do that? Why do I want to feel good? Why do I think that I deserve this? Why is it that my life doesn't provide me the joy necessary that I have to pursue this and that's just the first layer because it goes way deeper than that. Would you be brave enough to ask yourself why until you reveal the lie that you're believing or the lie that you've been told? You see, sometimes we live victimized by the lies that other people have spoken into our lives. You're not good enough. You're not good enough. You're stupid. You're worthless. Lies. Lies spoken over your life. And so then you're an adult, teenager, college student. And in the back of your mind, you hear the voices of the lies that you've heard your whole life. And, and you get caught up and you say, you know what, maybe I can't do that. And you're sitting passively as you watch your one and only life pass you by. And in front of everyone else, you're trying your hardest to say, look, look how smart I am. Look how, look how worthy I am. Look how important I am. And you play this game trying to strive for a level of acceptance and love that can never be found on this plane. Because what you really want is the love of a father. And the tragic truth is, he already loves you. The word of God says that you don't have to strive for it, that while you were an enemy of God, he loved you. He declared you worthy. Have you taken time to peel it back? so that you can find the lie and replace it with truth. Verse eight, he says, let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Sincerity and truth. Are there gospel truth tellers in your life? You can have a, a truth teller, Usually they're not, they're not super fuzzy people. I have a younger sister. She's a truth teller. You got to think through like, do you really want to know the answer before you ask? <laughs> hey, how do I look in this? Well, um, I'm like, oh, just kidding, just kidding, take it back. <laughs> She'll tell you the truth. So there's this layer of truth telling that I think is valuable in the life of every human being, but I think there's a deeper level of truth and that's a gospel truth teller that will look at you and say, listen, you're believing a lie and the truth of the gospel says this and you need to walk in freedom there. You see, sometimes you can't seem to speak the gospel to yourself. That's why we need a community, a community of people to speak it to you. A willingness to say, listen, I'm struggling with this and all of us are imperfect, but can you just help me understand the truth here? Because I can't seem to find it and I'm just broken and I'm alone and I'm hurting. 
And I want to tell you, Centerway is a place where we lean in and we speak the gospel to one another. Paul actually calls out Peter at one point. Peter's in a, in a phase in his life where he is kind of nervous with some racial tensions in the early church. We, th- we think about the depravity of our world now. There was racial tension back in the early church, and he's not sure, Jew, Gentile, how do I act now? And Paul looks at him and says, live your life in line with the gospel. He basically calls him and says, listen, you're a racist. What are you doing? The gospel has no space for that. What are you doing? And Paul calls him out. And listen, we need a church, a community of people that are willing to, in love, to look at each other and say, listen, Jesus says no to that. I love you and and God loves you, but my gosh, we can get through this together. Verse 9 and 10, Paul goes on. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexual immoral people. What what you may not know if you haven't been on the journey with us is uh, 1 Corinthians is actually the second letter that Paul has written to the church in Corinth. So the first letter we don't have access to uh, for a reason that we don't know except it's been lost by uh, a God-ordained manner. And so all we know is that he wrote a letter attached to addressing the sexual immorality of the people in the church and the church in Corinth is kind of like, eh, that's cute, Paul. We're going to do our own thing. Just kind of blows them off. And so he's making reference to this, and he's saying um, in verse 10, which I think is critical, he says, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world. He's not saying, let's go around reminding people far from God just how far from God they are. For some reason, the church has taken up this, the church Christendom has taken up this mantle of like, listen, we are going to try to redeem the world by reminding them how sinful they actually are. And you know what? 100% of the time, they're never shocked. <laughs> like, hey, you know what? We shouldn't do that. Why not? Because I want to impose my, moral, my morality on you. Like, yeah, we don't care. Well, the Bible says, yeah, I don't care what the Bible says. And we've, we've messed up, we've perverted what, what it is that, that God has intended in the context of communicating the truth of the gospel in correction. It's intended to correct the people within the church. That doesn't mean that we're apologetic about the truth of the gospel and how it has impact and hope for everyone around us. But we don't go around correcting people that could care less about what God says. So he says, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and the swindlers or the idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. In other words, I'm not telling you to not interact with the sinners of this world. Otherwise, you'd have to leave the world. Jesus was known as a friend of sinners. He was known as someone that, that sat down and engaged with people of all different levels, socioeconomic and different races and different walks of life, different struggles, different sins. And so Paul's saying, listen, I want you to engage with the sinners and the brokenness of this world, but for people within the church that say they're redeemed, that say Jesus is Lord and leader of their life, you've got to call them out. He goes on to say that those that profess to be Christian walk and walk in the flesh basically mean in rebellion to God are dangerous in a corporate setting. You see, all too often, I've witnessed this. I've been in in ministry nearly 20 years now. And I've witnessed um, people that will come in and and talk to me and say, hey, listen, I I didn't know what to do about this. And so I got some advice. I talked to some people in the church. They start telling me what those people said. And I'm like, wow. Do you mind me asking who you spoke to? They start telling me who they spoke to. I'm like, wow. 
yeah, um, that's not biblical advice. And so some of the pain that you're feeling right now and the confusion that you have is that you engaged people that you knew potentially would agree with what it is you wanted to do so that you could justify the actions that you made instead of coming to grips with the truth of the gospel. And so I think sometimes we get to a place where we not only want to lie to ourselves, but we seek out people that will agree with me. I'm right, right? I'm justified in this, aren't I? That's what Paul's warning them about. He's, he's saying, listen, a little bit of yeast, it's gonna, it affects the whole dough. It affects it all. You can't remain silent on this issue. And Paul wanted them and God wants us to see truth and to seek truth. What is the truth? What's the truth here? I want to tell you the truth is a person. It's Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life, the word of God says. And we find truth as we pursue Jesus individually and corporately. What does Jesus say about this? I don't want your opinion here. I want to know what Jesus says about it. What does the word of God say about this? Can we walk that journey together? Can we feel the pain of that together? Because sometimes the truth of the gospel leads to a level of pain before it leads to a place of healing. Why? Because we have to come face to face with our depravity. All of us. All of us. None of us are exempt from this. All of us are struggling with areas and corners of our lives that we would just love to keep dark or silent or in a space that we just say, ah, I don't want to talk about that. We'd love to say, I'm so appalled at those people. Have you heard what they do? I'm better than them. But you're not. Because we're all sinners saved by grace. We want to rank them. We want to rank them so we feel better about ourselves, but the truth is we're broken. And we need Jesus. We need truth. And so I want you to consider something as you leave this place this morning. What does this text mean to us? And at face value, you might look at it and just, you might have said on the front end, like, we should probably stay away from our stepmoms. Like, maybe that's what you say at face value. And I mean, I, I think that all too often, that's the way we approach scripture, just at face value. And we're like, oh, all right, I get it. Like, I'll make sure not to do that. But it's so much deeper, right? The truth of the application is what lie do you need to replace with truth this week? Because you're believing some form of a lie. In fact, if this morning you're saying, no, no, I, I seek Jesus in everything. I pursue no lies. The lie you're believing is that in some way you have avoided the fallen nature of sin. And so you have a religious leaning towards legalism that needs to be addressed. That's your lie. That you can somehow be your own redeemer. Every single person in this room has to come to a place where they say, listen, where am I believing the lies? Where am I speaking lies? Listen, some of you are speaking lies over your children. You've done so much better than your parents in so many ways. But you're speaking lies over them. You never listen. It's so easy for me to say that. You never listen. That's such a lie. It's such a lie. We speak little lies and we speak huge lies. 
We speak bigger lies over ourselves. And sometimes those are on the stages that someone else in our life have built. We stand on their lies and then we fortify them in our own lives. We say, you know what? Maybe I'm not smart. Maybe I'm not good enough. Maybe I am ugly. Maybe I am unworthy. Maybe I will never amount to anything. And so maybe I just need to strive and be hard, uh, work harder and do more because if I could just, I can earn it. I know I can. I'm going to prove myself valuable. Speak lies over ourselves. We speak lies over our marriage. We speak lies over our spouses. We just speak lies over our finances. This is never going to change. It's just who we are. If you don't think your situation can change, and if you don't think people can change, then you don't fully believe in the truth of the gospel. Because you're evidence of a changed and redeemed life. Do you look, think, and make decisions like you did before you confessed Christ? This is a question for those that consider themselves Christ followers this morning. Do you look, think, and make decisions like you did before you confess Christ? Where is the evidence of God in your life to transform your thoughts? Because the word of God says to renew our minds so that we can look at a different perspective, that we can now see the difference between truth and lie. It just not, it just shouldn't be. You shouldn't make decisions the same. You shouldn't sound the same. There should be a redemptive sanctification work of the Holy Spirit in your life, evidenced by you increasing your proximity to Jesus. And listen, if you sound the same, it's because you're not spending time with God. You're just not. Because when you spend time with Jesus, when you spend time in the word, when you spend time, we have opportunity to do that, to engage in devotions weekly. If you want, you can sign up for it. Our preaching team has an amazing uh, devotional that we write together. You can engage in that three days a week just to start something, to say, listen, I want to engage in God, with God. Spend time with Jesus. It seems like a, almost too easy of an application. But I want to challenge you as you leave this place to consider the lie that you need to replace with truth this week. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes, if you will. The worship team is going to make their way up, and as they do, for those of you that are in the room this morning and you're saying, listen, I've, <laughs> I've never asked Jesus to be the Lord and leader of my life. We talked about asking him to, to redeem the way you think, to renew your mind. And you sat there and said, well, I've never crossed that line. I've never said, Jesus, will you be the Lord and leader of my life? I want to provide an opportunity for you to do that this morning. I'm not going to make you raise your hand or come forward or anything. I don't want to embarrass you. I, just, I simply want to provide space. It's this simple, in the quietness of your mind, to say, Lord, I'm a sinner but I know that you died for my sins. So I pray that you'd come and forgive me. Be the Lord and leader of my life. It's that easy to begin a relationship with Christ. And if you pray that prayer in the quietness of your seat this morning, I'd love to have a conversation with you at the end of the service so that it's not just a, sort of an emotional response, but that it's something that can have feet. We have a discipleship process you can walk through if you're interested. I'd love to talk to you. For everyone else in the room, What's your application this morning? Because the text requires something from us. 
We can't just come into this room and just have church. There needs to be something that, that grips our hearts, something that we can leave this place and say, God, would you continue to till that soil in my heart? So I want to challenge you maybe this morning. It's, it's taking a moment right now. Take out your phone and put a note on there and just say, either schedule an appointment to, with yourself to figure out what the lie is and ask those why questions. Maybe it's just to write down because for some of you, it's like the Holy Spirit right now is just saying, the lie is right that. It's that. That's the lie. And you know it. You know the lie you're believing, but you just don't know how to replace it with truth. We'd love to talk to you about that. I'd love to have a conversation with you. Maybe for some of you, your application is to just say, I need more time with God. I need to increase my proximity to him. I'm so easily influenced by the worries and the cares of this world and I seek out people that will agree with me and tell me what I want to hear. I need to know what Jesus thinks about this. We want to provide that space and margin.